0: Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture, and its impact on the world today.
1: Comics, sometimes referred to as the ninth art, occupy a fascinating space in the cultural fabric of modern societies. How we view comics or what values we apply to them is highly dependent on what language we are speaking. In English, the term comic emerged in the US in the 20th century, directly implying that the art form is intrinsically of a humorous nature. In French, they are called bande dessinée, meaning drawn or illustrated strips. Similarly, in Dutch, the strip verhaal or strip story, does not make such characteristic demands on the medium, i.e. they do not have to be funny, even if they are often satirically so. In today's episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to flip through the pages of comic history in the Low Countries, from the use of illustrated prints from as early as the 15th century, to the position of comic studios in Belgium, and comic development in the Netherlands, during and after the Second World War. You'll hear about some titles that you may have never heard of before, as well as many that you smurf. While we peruse the panels of printed production from the Low Countries, we'll see how the ninth art has developed, constantly reflecting the ever-changing societies in the region. To help me sketch out these characters, and figure out what colours we are going to use... It is time to welcome Julian Smith
0: to the microphone. Hello, Julian. Hello, Joe. Hello, listeners. For some early examples of what could be considered graphic storytelling in the Low Countries, we need to go back over 500 years. With the invention of movable print in the 15th century in Europe, the means of communication on the continent skyrocketed. This had extremely profound effects on the distribution of ideas and, dare I anachronistically say it, memes. Illustrated pieces were not uncommon. The closest to our understanding of comics were centprinten or mannequinprinten, or as they're known in English, catchpenny prints. Catchpenny prints were made by woodcuts, in which an image relief would be carefully carved into a block of wood, after which the raised parts would be covered with ink, and then a piece of paper or parchment would be put on top. The result would be a mirror image of whatever had been carved on the wood. Catchpenny prints were cheap to create and mass-produced, and served to spread information to an audience that didn't have a lot of money to spend. They would communicate important cultural stories, such as Aesop's fables, or the lives of holy men, as in the case of one from around the 1460s that details the martyrdom of St. Erasmus in 12 textless panels. Also, many of the folk stories which we spoke about in our previous episode about myths and legends were depicted in Catchpenny prints. One of the most popular catchpenny prints was a set of stories which revolved around a character known as Jan de Wasser and his wife, Griet. These stories were widely read across the Netherlands from the late 17th century through to the 19th. The characters of Jan and Griet were already well known in the Low Countries, having developed out of a theatrical tradition of performance around the summer solstice in which the traditional gender roles would be swapped around on stage in a comic subversion of societal norms. In the Catchpenny print version of these stories, Jan de Wasser, literally Jan the Washer, is depicted as being a brow-beaten husband whose wife, Hritje, is most definitely wearing the pants in their relationship. Like, literally. Sometimes they physically get into fights over pants. Jan is shown being beaten by Hrit and then being put to work in the household, doing the laundry, looking after the baby, and doing the cleaning these early proto-comics are examples of how the discussing, defining, and redefining of gender roles are not unique to modern times, but were, rather, pretty prevalent in times long past. Drawn images were by no means new at that stage either, but the printing ability to widely distribute a story through images, sometimes with words attached, provided European society with yet another manner in which to communicate from the 15th century on. Drawings and illustrations can emit emotions in different ways to text, and so, both forms in partnership could really push a point home. A great example of this comes in the form of a letter of complaint from 1493, written on behalf of the Lord of Meurs to the Duke of Helders, Charles of Egmont. To briefly set the context of this letter, Duke Charles of Egmont, had been captured by the French in 1487 during the Battle of Bethune while fighting for the Burgundian duke Maximilian von Habsburg. A ransom was placed on him by the French king for the total of 80,000 gold gulden, a huge sum at the time. One of the leading nobles in Helders, an elderly statesman by the name of Vincent, the Count of Meurs, made tireless efforts throughout Helders trying to raise the money, but was only able to procure half of it. So, he travelled to Paris with that cash and with his grandson, Bernhard, in tow. Vincent van Meurs was able to secure the release of Charles of Egmont in early 1492 by offering up his grandson Bernhard as a hostage in Charles's place until the rest of the ransom could be paid. Bernhard was apparently assured by Charles of Egmont that the outstanding money would be collected and he would be released within two months. Well... A year and a half later, and Bernie was still languishing, albeit lavishly, in Peron, as a high-end prisoner of the French monarch. In the meantime, Charles of Egmont had been recognized by the people of Helders as Duke Charles II, putting him in direct opposition to the Habsburg-Ducal government. Whether he was distracted by this elevation and the complications it had brought up, or whether he had other reasons, Charles had failed to keep his promise to the would-be Count of Meurs. So, in 1493, Bernhard van Mures had little recourse but to write the Duke of Helders a very sternly worded letter of complaint, which contained both text and illustrations. In so doing, he wrote himself into Dutch comic book history, because this letter has been argued to be the first ever strip verhaal from the Netherlands, due to its, at the time, unique use of something that is so prevalent in comics today, speech bubbles. I'll describe the letter's layout. At the top left is an image of the letter itself being delivered to Duke Charles by a messenger who kneels before him. In all of the images, the Duke can always be identified by his coat of arms, which kind of hovers ephemerally above him, whatever he's doing. A speech bubble protrudes from the mouth of the messenger, who tells the Duke that he is coming in the name of the still-imprisoned Bernhard to admonish the Duke for failing to keep his promise, and to let him know what Bernhard had to say about it. Then there is a big body of text that is his actual complaint to the Duke, which leaves us in no doubt that Bernhard is pretty peeved at still being held prisoner in Parham. This is followed by another set of images, also accompanied by speech bubbles. These tell the story of the actual promise made. Charles of Egmont is first in prison, his coat of arms floating above him, and Bernhard stands on the other side of the bars. Both of them are grasping each other's hands through the gate. The speech bubble from Charles says, in flowery old-style language, that he promises to have Bernhard released within two months or otherwise return to prison himself in the noble's stead. In the next illustrated panel, they've swapped, with Bernhard inside the prison as the Duke and his coat of arms are outside. A speech bubble from Bernhard makes it clear that this has happened based solely on a solemn promise made to him by the Duke. Under these illustrated panels is another body of text, which is also a letter of complaint. This one, however, is directed at the people of Helders, outlining to them his futile endeavours to have the deal honoured. It's a pretty good rant. Here is a section of it.
1: All this he has paid little attention to and has cared little about. And it is very strange to any of his family and name that he should have such a disposition and laxity, and that the great fidelity and friendship, which can hardly be found greater elsewhere, does not move him to deliver me. And it has come at last that I must write, speak, and draw of him shamefully, wickedly, and dishonorably. Therefore I beseech all princes, earls, lords, knights, and cities what position they are in or to warn the aforesaid duke and remind him that he must not forget his honour, keep his promise,
0: and set me free, thereby helping me, poor prisoner. Copies of this document were then sent around to all the proper places, as well as hung up around the town of Zutphen for everyone to read, or at the very least take in the story through the images that it conveyed. Using the combination of illustrations and words, Bernhard could be sure that even illiterate people should be able to glean the meaning of the letter, while those who could read the text could also feel greater emotional attachment to the count's cause because of the graphic representation of the deal. There was clearly a lot of thought and work that went into that letter. I mean, I guess Bernhard had a lot of time in jail to think about how he was going to plead his case. He came up with a whole new genre of communication by doing so. But it failed to secure his release, and it no doubt completely irritated the Duke. Bernhard had to wait another seven years to secure his freedom. Besides the standout use of speech bubbles, the letter also shows that the medium of illustrated storytelling, whether we call it a comic, a strip hal, or a bande dessinée, was certainly a thing in the Low Countries as early as the 15th century.
1: The 19th century was a crucial one for the development of the ninth art. This was no less the case in the Low Countries than elsewhere around the world. Initially, children's illustrated books were extremely popular canvases for the medium. In the 1820s, however, a Swiss pioneer in graphic storytelling emerged named Rodolf Tupfer. He was a pedagogue by trade who used strip comics to communicate lessons for his students. His most well-known work was a comic series called L'Aventure de Monsieur Vieux Bois, also known as Monsieur Crypto Game. He consistently put text in little boxes below each panel, which is a style known today as Text Comic Style. This work by Tupfer is often seen as the frontrunner for the modern comic industry on the continent. He was so successful that his work was translated or copied in different countries around Europe, including in 1858, when J J A Gaufener did so in the Netherlands, with the retitled titled Meester Prickerbean or Mr. Prickerleg becoming a huge success. In Belgium, meanwhile, the development of comics was being heavily influenced by France, and as such, a divide developed across the Low Countries between French-slash-Franco-Belgian comics and Flemish-slash-Dutch ones. It was also during this time that newspaper outlets cottoned on to the advertising potential of their products, and sought to build up their readerships as much as possible. In both countries, this created platforms for comic creators to launch their work further into the public's imagination. By the end of the century, comic strips, caricatures, and cartoons had grown into the adult spheres of political debate, satire, and derision. Now, the space was there. For a new type of artist to emerge the comic artist in the netherlands the first of these is recognized as being jan linzer who in collaboration with journalist willem smalt created a political satire magazine called abraham pricky's open on merkingen translating roughly as abraham pricky's reflections and observations the character is a fictional magazine editor abraham pricky he is cultured well-heeled, self-congratulatory, and a bit of a know-it-all who aims to hold others to account for their political or social failings. This is probably better characterized as a series of standalone caricatures and satirical cartoons rather than the sequential strip panels. But nonetheless, Abraham Pricky's Op and Arne Merkingen ran for six years, having a great effect from 1891 to 96. Other than pieces like this, the comic medium in the Netherlands and Belgium still largely lingered in the realm of children's books. This, however, was about to change. Perhaps the most defining feature of Belgium is that it is the crossroads of Western Europe, where distinctly different language groups, identities, and cultures blend into one. This was also the case with comics. Brussels became the shared space on the Venn diagram of French, Belgian, and Flemish slash Dutch comic influence. In Belgium, particularly, in the 1920s, there was a boom of youth magazines and youth newspaper supplements. These now provided a new generation of comic illustrators with a platform on which they could advance the medium. One of these artists was called Georges Rémy, but he would find fame under the pen name Hergé. That's right, it is at this point in the history of Low Countries Comics that Hergé émergé. Born in 1907, Remy was a sometimes hyperactive, intelligent, and intense young man. He was of a sociable nature, but also wielded a critically-minded attitude, and could become withdrawn and isolated, suffering from feelings of inadequacy. From a young age he was taken by several lifelong passions one of these was the boy scouts where he learned the values of friendship and generosity that would accompany him for the rest of his life he also loved doing detailed graphic work such as typography and importantly for our story drawing often the subject matter of his illustrations was inspired by the lessons he was receiving in school such as learning about hannibal and sketching scenes of elephants clambering up mountains. His father shared the same passion as him for the art, and one story relates how in his youth, Georges and his father had once both drawn aeroplanes. His father's depiction was of a lightweight vehicle, built as if like a dragonfly. Georges, on the other hand, was more akin to what he had borne witness to as a young boy and teenager during the First World War. Stocky, frightful, death machine. Apparently, Georges concluded from the contrasting styles between them that his father was an idealist, while he was a realist. Through his Boy Scout friends and connections, in 1922 he became involved in The Boy Scout, the creatively named newsletter for the Federation of Boy Scouts. He began to contribute drawings to it. The first few of these were signed G. G Remy, which he found a boring signature. He then tried Jérémy, as in Jeremy, and then jeremiad but none of these stuck. In a 1924 edition, we find the first example of him trying something wildly different, and switching his initials GR around to RG, or as it would sound in Australian-accented French, RG. His first legit comic strip also appeared in The Boy Scout, called The Adventures of Totor, CP of the Dunebugs, whose protagonist, Totor, was a Boy Scout leader. Although this strip used text boxes, Remy was soon frustrated by them, and it was not long before he was using speech bubbles, as well as the now familiar use of single exclamation or question marks to communicate his character's surprise or befuddlement, as well as the onomatopoeic use of terms like, boom, bang, and whiz. To quote Rémy's biographer, Pierre Asseline, quote, The story was very Boy Scout in spirit, end quote. This spirit would remain in Rémy's work for decades to come. His first big break came in 1925, aged 18, when through his scout's connections, he landed a job with the very Catholic newspaper, Le 20e Siècle. This was based in Brussels and run by an abbot named Norbert Wallet. Wallet was a big man, fiercely Wallonian in keeping with his name, and a very domineering figure, who maintained final control over all aspects of the newspaper and its supplements. Norbert Wallet also had a pretty big penchant for right-wing extremism. In 1923, he travelled to Rome following Mussolini's takeover. He studied Mussolini's methods and manners, and even interviewed Il Duce himself. Upon his return to Belgium, he was a convert to the cause of fascism. Along with this came tendencies such as railing against politicians, Jews, liberals, foreigners, and Freemasons. According to Asseline, Wallay quote, had great hopes for his country, and his political philosophy was laid out in his book, Belgium and the Rhineland, in which he denounced the Treaty of Versailles, attributing it to the scheming of international high finance guilty of profiteering from supplying the aggressors on both sides, end quote. Wallet sought to capture the attention of his country's youth and was active in his self-appointed purpose of guiding, teaching, and bearing a moral compass for those in need, and Georges Remy was one such man who fell under the shadow of his wings. Coming into Wallet's sphere of influence would change Remy's life so much that right until the end of his life, he would maintain that... To the abbot Wallet, quote, I owe him everything, end quote. In Wallé, he found a father figure who would never draw military planes like delicate little insects. In Wallé, he found a man who had wrapped his fascist idealism up in the blanket of loud faux realism. Wallet provided spiritual, political, and social guidance for Remy. He encouraged him to read widely and expand his cultural awareness as well as to overcome his critical judgment and to be more open to people, so long as those people were aligned to within the bounds of his vehement anti-Semitic fascism. Quote, Father Wollet's influence was not restricted to George's spiritual life, nor to the strictly political. It had both a moral and an intellectual dimension. Wollet helped him become conscious of his abilities and put color into his life. Thanks to him, George no longer felt inadequate, and could overcome the mediocrity of his education, which otherwise could have led him straight to a life as a bank clerk. Father Wallet was like a revelation to him, and Georges Rémy was becoming Hergé."
0: Indeed, it is by this pseudonym, Hergé, that Georges Rémy would become famous. In 1928, Norbert Wallet created a supplement to his newspaper that was aimed at youth, called Le Petit Vingtième. He gave Remy, who had just recently returned from his military service, the job as editor-in-chief, as well as main contributor. His first job was to illustrate 10 weeks' worth of comic strips from a story written by the main newspaper's sport writer. Remy hated the story itself, seeing it as boring. His loyalty to Norbert Valet and his desire to satisfy his boss's wishes saw him stick with it to completion. From then on, though, Remy decided that he was not the collaborative sort when it came to comics. Nope, he would do his best work alone. In an early 1929 edition of Le Petit Vingtième, under the name Hergé, he unleashed a new series upon the world of comic strips, which he had created himself. Its name, in English, is The Adventures of Tintin. In Dutch, he's called Kaffie. We do not have time to go into an extremely deep analysis of Tintin as a character, or a comic. Exactly what he represented for both Hergé, Father Wallet, or Belgian comics in general is a very, very complex topic. But it is worth touching on a couple of things. Despite many stories abounding about where exactly Remy got the idea for Tintin, the artist would always give credit to Father Wallet when asked about it. Apparently, Wallet had specifically requested that he make a good Catholic character with a dog, who exhibited all the values and principles that he was trying to instill in his pupils and those under his mentorship. That is why Tintin finds himself in the middle of all the action, but always on the side of the stated moral good. The first Tintin series, which appeared every Thursday in Le Vingtième Siecle for nearly a year and a half, was called Tintin in the Land of the Soviets. He sent his intrepid young Boy Scoutish reporter off to Moscow and in so doing, Remy depicted a Soviet Union and Russian character that was very in line with the kind of anti-Bolshevik and anti-Semitic rhetoric that he would have been very well versed in by Father Wallet. It is clearly a very deliberate piece of propaganda, confirmed by Remy, who once explained that with it, he had, quote, been inspired by the atmosphere of the paper, which taught him that being a Catholic meant being anti-Marxist, end quote. He did not have time to study any decent publications on Bolshevik Russia or the USSR, other than one piece written by a fiercely anti-communist Belgian diplomat. There are some pretty funny mistakes in it, like his inclusion of Bananas, which didn't exist in Russia at the time. Remy, this very inexperienced comic artist, was quite literally learning his trade on the go as he created Tintin. He was never proud of the first series, and it was the only one of his earlier works that he never reproduced in colour. His second Tintin series, Tintin in the Congo, which appeared in 1931, could probably have done being similarly consigned to the past, rather than undergoing a coloured reprinting in 1946. It is a stark reflection of a period in which Belgium's colonial imperialism in Africa carried all the nuance of Rudyard Kipling's white man's burden in its patronizing paternalism towards the Congolese. It wasn't necessarily his idea to go to the Congo. Remy actually wanted to send Tintin to the USA next. Ever under the influence of the nationalistic priest Norbert Wale, however, Remy's opinion counted for little. It said, quote, Father Wale saw things otherwise, and he made all the decisions, end quote. We're not going deeply into the details of Belgian colonialism here. But in the late 19th century, the Belgian king, Leopold II, had claimed a large chunk of Central Africa as his private property, calling it the Congo Free State, ushering in a brutal era of exploitation and colonial abuses of the people whose lives were now subject to the whims of this random old bearded bloke in Europe, not to mention the other shady power brokers who financed it. Congo Free State was distinctly not a part of the Belgian Kingdom, until, by the first decade of the 20th century, enough international pressure against the atrocities committed saw Leopold II formally bequeath the territory to the Belgian state, turning it into the Belgian Congo. Under the administration of the Belgian government, enough superficial changes were made to laws and structures in the Congo for a narrative to emerge in Belgium the abuse and exploitation which had been so rampant in the Congo Free State had now ceased. This was not the case. Because it's also not the subject of this episode, we will leave it there for now. What it means for us, however, is that Remy, in Brussels, conjured up a Congo for Tintin to visit that did not reflect reality, but rather the fancies of those who had bought and swallowed the narrative that Belgian rule was beneficial to the people being subjected to it. Remy, never one for actually going to the places that he sent his intrepid reporter and his dog, did do some research on the subject. He visited the colonial museum in Tervuren, which, by the way, is still there. The inherent bias of this museum at the time notwithstanding, there was also no escaping Remy's already ingrained preconceptions about Africans and Belgian colonialism. These had already been fully displayed a few years earlier, when he submitted work to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Henry Morton Stanley's Discovering the Congo, which led to it being granted to Leopold II. One of his drawings for this work had portrayed an African obediently kneeling before a European. That was the starting point for Tintin in the Congo. In the decades that followed World War II, this series would become ever more seen as racist and unacceptable, which, by the standards of today, it most certainly is. We'll be back after this break. Let's
1: mention the war. In 1939, prior to the German invasion of the Low Countries and France, Remy was called to national service, being stationed as a French speaker in a Flemish infantry division. He had to put the brakes on Tintin production. In his absence, Le Petit Vincium suffered a drop in sales and an offer was made to him by another artist that if remy could just provide storylines and sketches he would complete the strips for him in this way Tintin could continue unimpeded remy not being a big group worker outright refused he did manage to consistently make and send two plates a week while on duty as well as drawing sketches and cartoons of his brief life in the army The official Belgian position, championed by its king, Leopold III, was neutrality. An ardent monarchist, Remy stood firmly by this position, albeit in private. Some illustrations he did for a newspaper, L'Ouest, hinted at his neutrality through an arrogant and cowardly character that he created called Mr. Bellum, Bellum being war. A scandal would emerge from his connection with this newspaper, L'Ouest, when it was revealed that it had actually been backed by high-end Nazis. This did not help Remy's reputation in the aftermath, given that during this time he never gave full commitment to the cause of remaining uninvolved in the war. War, on the other hand, would not remain uninvolved with him, nor with Belgium. Upon the invasion, Remy and many Belgians reacted with all the fear due to a folk who, only a generation earlier, had seen what trauma a German military invasion could produce they fled to france but as we all well know even the military might of france was unable to hold up against the wehrmacht in the long run and by the end of june both the belgian king and the french nation had submitted to the german occupation remy remaining fiercely loyal to his king followed his lead returning to brussels and continuing his work for le petit Ventime. but the war was having its impact. And on the 10th of August, he wrote to his editor,
0: Le is dead. Le Petit Ventième also. Let's see what happens. The Belgian king's approach to this occupation was that the people
1: be practical and just waited out. Taking his cue and getting on with life, Remy was approached by and accepted a job from one of the newspapers that was allowed to continue, as long as its compliance with the occupying regime continued also. This newspaper was called Le Soir. For accepting this job, he would forever have the burden of moral ambiguity hanging over his head, needing to constantly justify himself.
0: He would later say of it, I worked, period, that's all. Just like a miner works, or a streetcar ticket taker, or a baker. While everyone found it normal that a mechanic made trains run, they thought the people of the press were supposedly traitors which leads to the
1: interesting topic of morality around comics and comic production during a time like this. If we take Remy at face value, he was doing exactly what he had exhibited in his youth when he illustrated an aeroplane whose realism contrasted so starkly with the lightweight and fanciful version made by his father. In this instance, he was being real about this situation too. On October 17th, 1940, Tintin and Snowy appeared in Le Soir, ...for the first time. Not long after, he got feedback... ...that would reflect the dubiousness... ...in which his work, both during the war... ...and after,
0: would be forever shrouded. Permit me, sir... ...as the father of a large family... ...to express my sorrow and disappointment... ...at seeing Tintin and Snowy... ...appear in the new Soir. Have you thought about the responsibility... ...that you have assumed? Without Tintin, the new Soir Jeunesse... ...would fall flat in six weeks... With your friends, it will continue because we know them, we like them, and we will buy the paper to follow their adventures. Then, little by little, children will come under the new influence. Insidiously and deceitfully, the venom of their neo-pagan religion from beyond the Rhine will be introduced in the margins of your entertaining drawings. They will no longer speak of God, of the Christian family, of the Catholic ordeal. Can you agree to collaborate in this terrible act? A real sin against the spirit? Remy, though,
1: would remain as practically minded
0: as he had always been. Through
1: brokering a deal for the publication of Tintin in a Portuguese newspaper, he was able to move capital and assets to Portugal, so as to be able to protect himself and his family from the increasing deprivations that the war was bringing upon Belgium. One of his major concerns was that there would continue to be a paper shortage throughout, limiting his work. When Soi Jeunesse, the supplement that Tintin appeared in, was cancelled due to this shortage, he was sure that it was the end of his character's adventures. However, Le Soi asked him to continue, although with fewer panels to work with. Tintin was now to become a daily, rather than weekly, series, and would from then on appear in the main paper, right next to the stock market report. As the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany became more pervasive and deadly in its occupied territories from 1941 on, the character of Le Soir's content marched in step with it, some of which Remy contributed work to. Working with an open collaborator, Bois de Freulander, he illustrated ten fables, two of which had seriously anti-Semitic and anti-English tones. As for Tintin, It was between October 1941 and May 1942 that his 10th adventure was released upon the world. It was called The Shooting Star. It reflected so much of the time from which it emerged, being extremely apocalyptic, mired in international competition, and degraded by the existence of a character called Blumenfeld, an avaricious New York banker with a bulbous nose. Ugh. He continued to work for Le Soir, and none of his work was ever banned by authorities, although they complained about the Black Island being too British. He censored himself at least once, removing a big USA flag from his Coloured Tintin in America book. In 1944, though, everything changed. He was in the middle of telling the story of the Seven Crystal Balls when the Allies liberated Brussels. This would not bode well for old Hergé, as Asseline writes, The fact was that Eger was among those who had done well during the occupation. He was listed as a collaborator, a traitor, even, and in the aftermath would be arrested four separate times by four different bodies operating to bring collaborators to justice state security, the judiciary police, the Belgian national movement, and the Front for Independence. All but one time he was released the same day. On that other occasion, He met another old peer who had been arrested as a collaborative editor. This man told Remy that he faced 10 years imprisonment but had done nothing wrong. Remy was held overnight but released the next day. The man however that he had spoken to did not get 10 years, rather he was executed by firing squad. Georges Remy would not escape the scrutiny for some time and would never shake this massive stain on his reputation. He was blacklisted, along with anyone else who had helped to print publications under the occupying regime. The ignominy and the subsequent unemployment, however, would remain his greatest punishment.
0: In another judicial inquiry, the prosecutor concluded, I am inclined to close the case. I believe it would bring ridicule on the judicial system to go after an inoffensive children's book author and illustrator. On the other hand, Hergé worked for Lesoir during the war. And his illustrations are what made people buy the newspaper.
1: It seems an interesting contradiction in terms that kids comics next to the stock market report made people buy the paper, but were essentially harmless. Despite the press ban, he was able to continue releasing his own Tintin magazine and also started rebooting and colorizing his earlier work. Eventually, he would be permitted back into newspaper publication when people who had been attached to the resistance, but also big fans of Tintin in the Soviet Union when they were younger, got him clearance to continue the series in a children's magazine they were planning. This clearance required a good investigation into his file. Following this investigation, the investigator said of him that for working with Le Soir, he had been a blunderer rather than a traitor. Thanks to this, Georges Rémy, Hergé, could carry on continuing his most famous comic. Tintin could have ever more adventures yet. Childhood me is very grateful. Adult me feels
0: pretty awkward about it. It is worth mentioning another Belgian comic that found its footing in the turmoil of these times. In Flemish and Dutch, it is called Suske and Whisker. In French, Bob et Bobette. In English, Spike and Susie. And in North America, Willie and Wanda. We are going to go with Siska and Whisker. Its creator, Willy van der Steen, was a Flemish window dresser who had become enamoured with American comic strips prior to the war. With the occupation and the war, these comics were no longer found in Flanders. Comic strip historian Pascal Lefebvre notes that, quote, the disappearance of the American comics during the Second World War left a vacuum in the Flemish press. End quote. This, it seems, gave Vandersteen impetus to get into the game. It was not until late in the war, following liberation, but whilst still facing rocket attacks from the Germans, that Vandersteen had his first strip published on March the thirtieth, nineteen forty-five. It appeared in the paper De Nieuwe Standard and according to legend, some panels were drawn as he sat in an air raid shelter in Antwerp. The first series was actually called The Adventures of Ricky and Viska in Czechoslovakia. By the second series, Ricky had disappeared, and Viska would meet her now eternal adventure buddy, Suska. These two ageless kids would exist in a world which was not restricted by time or space, their adventures drawing on the context of everything from myth and folklore to current events and social issues. Compared to Hergé, who was very under the thumb of Father Wallet, Van der Steen seemed more willing to experiment with styles, issues, and creative license. He made one of his main characters a female, which would help open the door for what would become a particularly Flemish trait in comic history. The two named characters, Suska and Whisker, have an aunt Agatha, who is enamoured with a man named Orville. They are not married, and, if we're honest, Orville is pretty abusive. But the point is, if comics are a mirror held up to society, then van der Steen's mirror was unpolished. He would do things like draw three panels in which a character is being smashed by another in the first panel, flies through the second one, and disappears behind the third panel, completely breaking conventional rules of comic strip storytelling. After initial success with Siska and Viska, in 1948, Hergé offered van der Steen space for their adventures in the Tintin magazine, which van der Steen accepted. Hergé was trying to grow Tintin's popularity in the Flemish and Dutch markets, and this was part of his strategy to appeal to those markets. Over ten years, van der Steen would submit eight series to the Tintin magazine, but he would be subjected to Hergé's artistic influence and his notorious editorial authoritarianism. Certain characters, tones, and concepts were disallowed by Hergé, who sought greater sophistication from van der Steen. During this period, there is a notable difference in the Suske and Whisker stories that continued to appear in the newspaper from those that appear in Tintin. As the 1960s came and went, van der Steen showed a far greater willingness to change, modify, and update his worldviews than Hergé ever would. The latter would never accept that the war's brutality had been most borne by specifically targeted victims. To Hergé, everyone had suffered equally. He even flat-out rejected testimonies by friends who had actually seen the death camps. He said, quote, You are not remembering correctly. It made an impression. You mistook what you saw. And first of all, how do you know they were Jews? They were surely common-law criminals, end quote. Van der on the other hand, became more willing to have a crack at things that he felt deserved derision, such as taxation and government. In his Carnival of the Apes from 1965, all the world's politicians are replaced by apes, and nobody in the world notices a difference. In another, Mad Meg, he creates a character to find out why wars are waged, and finishes it by drawing a Vietnamese child crying as bombs fall over them he was clearly becoming ever more bitter about the state of the world. And by the early 1970s, he had lost his passion for his creation, wishing to put energy into other projects. He handed control of Siska and Viska over to Paul Gertz, who had worked with him on them for over five years. Hertz would shepherd the now extremely popular comic through the last third of the 20th century, handing over the reins in 2001. Stepping through the door that van der Steen had left open, He similarly did not shy from using the comic as a platform for issues and ideas that he felt mattered, even if he occasionally contradicted his past self over topics such as environmentalism and nuclear benefits. After the Second
1: World War, a type of comic known as a veiled roman exploded in popularity throughout the Netherlands. Because of the effects of the war, a paper shortage plagued the country. Paper was critical for transmitting information through newspapers, magazines and letters, as well as in the production of envelopes. Immediately after the liberation, newspapers such as Traw were only permitted by the military council and the press council to be produced on one page, printed on both sides, in order to save paper. Given this context, it's easy to see why small graphic novels became extremely popular. The typical bailed roman was tiny, measuring just 7cm wide by 11cm high, and consisted only of a few pages. Each page would usually have one drawing on it, as well as text, and would tell either a complete story, or be one episode in a longer series. Bailed romans were small enough to fit in your pocket, and they were cheap to buy, costing typically about 25 cents. The most common Roman genre were detective stories. You can probably already imagine it in your mind, a private detective infiltrating the seedy underworld of organized crime and bravely bringing it to justice. It shouldn't be surprising that these kind of stories were popular back then, since, well, they're still incredibly popular today. Take a look at how many police dramas there are on television, or have a listen to any of the thousands of true crime podcasts around. One of the most famous fictional detectives to appear in the Netherlands in the 1940s was created by a man named Alfred Mazurder, who gave his character a truly fantastic name, Dick Boss. Dick Boss first appeared in a comic strip form in a magazine called The Prince in 1940. Unsatisfied with how slowly the magazine was produced, however, Mazura soon after found a publisher called Ten Hagen to create a monthly Dick Boss veiled roman. The first of these came out in 1941 and they became extremely popular with the youth of the Netherlands, especially after Mazura insisted that they be distributed for free at schools. Some editions of Dick Boss saw over a hundred thousand copies printed. As for the character himself, Dick Boss, he is described as being a detective who fought criminals in a way that was tough but fair, but he was also skilled in the martial art of jujitsu. The stories were often pretty violent and showed the most sleazy and sordid side of society. In the first Dick Boss story, the hero gets caught up in a drug trafficking case involving a Chinese ship which is smuggling cocaine into the Netherlands. He gets caught and sold into slavery in China before escaping and helping to round up all the baddies. Dick Boss became so popular in the Netherlands during the war that in 1942, Alfred Mazura was approached by a German publishing company called Ulstein, who pretty much offered him a blank check to turn Dick Boss into a German spy. Despite this financial incentive and the opportunity to publish Dick Boss on a much larger scale than would otherwise be possible, Mazura turned them down, apparently saying, quote, Gentlemen, I don't think my hero would look good in an SS uniform, end quote. A few weeks later, Dick Boss was banned from sale in the Netherlands after it was pronounced as being English propaganda, and both Mazurda and his publisher were slapped with large fines. Dick Boss would no longer appear on Dutch shelves, until 1946 that is, when the bailed romance were continued. The success of Dick Boss saw the proliferation of a bunch of other similar build romans as artists and authors tried to cash in on this gravy train throughout the late 1940s. These were collectively known as Dick Bossies, which again is hilarious, and this period saw the creation of other characters such as Lex Brand, Tom Vels, and Spot Morton. These stories explored similar themes to Dick Boss and were full of violence, unsavory characters and all sorts of immorality. Soon enough, they drew the ire of teachers across the Netherlands as their students were too busy reading these exciting stories rather than their assigned schoolwork. There was consternation about what stories like these might do to the minds of the precious youth. On the 19th of October 1948, the Dutch Minister of Education, Arts and Science, Theo Rutten, a member of the KVP, the Catholic People's Party, sent a memorandum out to schools across the country lambasting bailed romans and encouraging the schools to stop children from reading them. It's quite colourful, so let's just read the whole thing out right here.
0: I am aware that some of the Dutch school youth frequently read so-called bailed romans. These booklets, which contain a coherent series of drawings with an accompanying text, are generally of sensational quality without any other value it is not possible to take criminal action against the printers, publishers, or distributors of these novels, nor can anything be achieved by not making paper available, since the paper needed for these publications is available on the free market. Although I am convinced that in most schools the reading of these books is discouraged as much as possible, I will nevertheless appreciate it if you would point out to the staff of your schools perhaps unnecessarily, that it is desirable to see that the students do not bring the bailed romans into the school or distribute them among their comrades. Pupils should be reminded of the very superficial character of this reading and of the numerous books which are more worthy of their interest.
1: In other words, cancelled. To further ram home this point, a similar message was printed in newspapers across the country on the 25th of October, 1948, over the next few weeks, a good old-fashioned media frenzy was whipped up as people anxiously worried about the effects these bailed romans were having on the minds of their kids. Police raided a train station in Sittard that month and confiscated over a thousand bailed romans and other magazines and periodicals which were being sold at a kiosk there. An article from the Neue Schiedamse Courant wrote of this that, quote, this sad experience has shown that this literary filth is readily bought by children of 11 years and older, exposing the moral health of our youth to very grave dangers, end quote. Public figures such as the beloved children's author Annie M.G. Schmidt blasted the medium as being pulp fiction, which, quote, are mostly stories about kidnappings, which in the worst cases are sadistic, erotic, and in all cases are trivially sensational. Other articles compared bailed romance to drugs such as opium and accused them of poisoning the minds of children. In the Groene Amsterdamer, one article wrote Are these not handles by which to breed by force a stupid dull mass, a tasty breeding ground for any totalitarian endeavor? Media Circus reached its climax a month later, when on the 19th of November, 1948, a 16-year-old girl named Annie Roller was killed in bizarre circumstances by her 15-year-old boyfriend, Mati Bausman, in the town of Enkhausen. In the days after the killing, newspapers across the country brought to light that Annie was a big fan of bailed romance and that Mati was really into radio plays. Given the contemporaneous moral panic around bailed romans, a murder was quickly linked to them, with headlines such as victim of bailed romans, and under the spell of negative suggestions, films, novels, and radio plays, the background to the terrible drama at Enkhausen. To be fair to the headline writers at the time, the killing was incredibly strange. Ani had been tied to a train track with ropes, and then stabbed to death with a dagger. There were no signs of any struggle, which led to speculation that, at least up until some point, Annie had consensually gone along with whatever was happening. Details from her diary were published, which showed that, in the days leading up to her death, she and Mati had visited the place where she would be killed and had, quote, a lot of fun, end quote. According to her parents, she had been acting very nervously. In her diary, she also wrote, quote, I'm going to be murdered, but Mati will help me, end quote. During her funeral, Mati's mother spoke and said, quote, Mati loved you, Ani. He didn't want this. He was being driven by dark forces, end quote. This weird and twisted story has, to be frank, all the hallmarks of a bailed Roman plot. One year later, an Alkmaar court would find that Mati was not criminally responsible for the death of Ani, due to suffering from a severe psychotic episode at the time of the killing. Despite this, the reputational damage had already been done to the image of bailed romans, in the wider society, that is. Publishers began to distance themselves from them. Newspapers were filled with opinion articles deriding them, and libraries and schools removed them from shelves. A letter was circulated by Dutch libraries, which labelled bailed romans as, quote, a hearth of infection and nihilism, which were... To continue the quote, a complete negation of the book, the appalling symptom of a time that is in desperation for the suicide of the mind, end quote. The publisher of Dick Boss, Ten Hagen, tried their best to defend their character by printing an information card arguing that Dick Boss should be exempt from all this criticism since the character worked with the police and never killed anyone. He just jujitsu'd them, but it was to no avail and new Dick Boss stories wouldn't be published again until 1960. Dick Boss had survived being cancelled by the Nazis, only to be cancelled again by the post-war Dutch government. It's hard not to draw comparisons between the story of Dick Boss and the outrage fueled society we are living in in the 21st century. When new forms of art or media emerge, it is inevitable that they will at some point come under the microscope of morality, Humans cannot help themselves from looking at somebody enjoying something which is unfamiliar or out of the ordinary and collectively morph into Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons, clutching at pearls, wailing,
0: Oh, won't somebody please think of the children?
1: Today you will often read anxious articles online warning about the dangers of this or that latest TikTok trend. In the 90s, there were perturbed pronouncements in the news that violent video games, heavy metal music, gangster rap, or Hollywood films were leading towards the proliferation of school shootings. And in the late 1940s, in the Netherlands, this same hand-wringing took place, all because of the jujitsu-loving, crime-solving, Dick Boss.
0: Before we wrap up this episode today, we of course have to take a look at probably the most famous comic characters to have ever emerged from the Low Countries, the Smurfs. The Smurfs were the creation of Belgian comic artist Pierre Culliford, better known by his pen name Peyo, who was born in Brussels on the 28th of June, 1928. Peo's mother was Belgian and his father was an English stockbroker who had become a naturalized Belgian citizen. His father's family lineage can be traced back to a 17th century English pirate by the name of Robert Culliford, who is often speculated as being a bisexual or homosexual man who went a-marauding and a-pirating through the Caribbean, Canada, and India, which is a wonderfully colourful tale which should definitely be turned into a comic strip one day. When Peyo was young, he was not particularly interested in school, but he was a huge fan of history and comics. He would doodle famous figures from history in the margins of his school books. Peo was a big fan of Hergé, as well as American comic book characters such as Mickey Mouse. He would put on theatrical productions at home for his family based on stories that he had read in these comics. When Peo was just seven years old, his father died abruptly from myopathy, which is a muscle disease which nobody at that time understood. And after the father's death, the Culliford family ran into financial issues. When Peo was 15, he had little choice but to drop out of school and go to work. Peo first worked as a projectionist in a movie theatre. In the summer of 1945, he caught a lucky break when he got a job working as a colorist at the Compagnie Belge de Actualités, the CBA, a Belgian animation studio. At this company, he met a bunch of famous Belgian comic artists, such as André Franquin and Maurice de Beiffere, His job involved colouring in frames using a type of watercolour paint. The first project he worked on was a film called Un Cadeau à la Fée, A Gift to the Fairy, which involved small elvish characters wearing distinctive hats who most definitely looked like proto-smurfs. The film was never finished, however, when the head of the studio, a man named Paul Nagant, was accused of collaboration and arrested. The studio was forced to close just months after Peo had begun working there. The artists were left unpaid, and the film with the elves was never finished. Although other artists from the studio immediately found new work, the young Peo was left high and dry and unemployed. Having had a taste of what life as an artist could be like, Peo enrolled at the Académie Royale des Beaux-Arts in Brussels to study fine arts. He quickly found that studying wasn't for him, however, and dropped out after three months, instead finding work in advertising. Although illustrating ads helps him earn money, Peyot was intent on forging ahead and becoming a comic artist. He created new characters, some of which were unsuccessful, such as a pirate called Capitán Koki, but some did find commercial success, such as a cat called Pussy, which was published in Le Soir magazine, as well as a character who was a medieval pageboy by the name of Johan. In 1952, Peyo once again had a lucky break when he happened to bump into his former colleague at CBA, André Franquin, who got him a job at Spirou magazine in 1952. At Spirou, Peyo began refining and improving his Johan comics, which evolved into Johan et Perlui, which told the story of the young up-and-coming knight Johan and his comic sidekick, a goblin trickster by the name of Berlouis. These were hugely successful, and the magazine sold close to 200,000 copies a week throughout Belgium and France. It is in a 1958 Johann et Berlouis story called The Flute with the Six Holes that Péot's most famous characters would make their first appearance on comic pages. In this story, Johann and his sidekick are sent on a quest by a wizard after a baddie by the name of Matthew McCreep steals a magic flute which causes anyone who hears it to start dancing involuntarily. While they are busy dancing, McCreep would dispossess them of their valuables. The only people who can destroy the flute and thus stop McCreep are those who had created it, a tribe of small blue creatures called, in French, Les Strumpfs. in English, the Smurfs. The origin story behind the name Les Strumpfs is an amusing little anecdote that encourages us to laugh at the locations where human language and linguistics lack the nuances to express what we mean, or perhaps where meaning can be expressed through words which don't belong to any language. And what better place to do this than a country whose population often finds itself divided by language, Belgium? According to the story, Peyot was sharing a meal with fellow comic artist Andre Franquin when he tried to ask him to pass the salt. Whilst making this seemingly trivial request, Peo momentarily forgot the word for salt, and instead of saying, «Passez-moi le sel," «Could you pass me the salt?», he said, «Passez-moi le strumpf». This kind of mistake is called a malapropism, where one word is substituted in for another incorrectly. Frankin thought this was hilarious, handing it back saying, «Here's your strumpf!», to which Peo replied, When I'm done with it, I'll strumpf it back. This became an ongoing joke between the two, whereby they'd use this word strumph in place of any adjective, noun, or verb. This would become a defining characteristic of the Smurf language, in which the Smurfs smurf with each other, and only other Smurfs really smurf what they smurf. From this humble beginning in the flute with the six holes, the Smurfs exploded onto the world stage. In 1959, they would appear in their own comic stories for the first time, as well as in an early animated film. With Peyo's rising success, his other comics became more popular too, so much so that Peyo ended up creating a new studio with himself at the head, Studio Peyo. In 1963, the first Smurfs book was published, which saw the introduction of the evil wizard Gargamel and his cat Azrael. As the Smurf universe expanded, the Smurfs themselves expanded into our universe. In 1965, Smurf toys appeared for the first time, small PVC figurines, which were licensed to a German manufacturer called Schleich. A year later, the Smurfs appeared on Kellogg's Cornflakes packets in French-speaking countries as their mascot, and similar figurines were given away in the boxes. It turns out that people really Smurfed the Smurfs. In 1981, the Smurfs were turned into an animated series by Hanna-Barbera, which would run for eight years with 285 episodes. Their name has been translated into 40 different languages, and they've appeared in feature films, video games, ice skating shows, toys and commercials all around the world. As just one further example of how important the Smurfs are in the wider Belgian cultural context, as of 2022, the Smurfs even feature on Belgian passports, alongside other characters such as Tintin and Lucky Luke. Although the Smurfs take place in a fantasy world, some of their stories also reflect the cultural complexities of their land of origin. One example of this is the comic book Smurf vs Smurf, in which the Dutch and French-speaking divide in Belgium is parodied. In this story, the usually peaceful and somewhat utopian Smurf village is split over a disagreement about the Smurf language. The northern part of the village substitutes the word smurf just for nouns, while the southern smurfs use the word smurf for adjectives and verbs. An argument about the proper use of the word smurf heats up and turns into a brawl between the northern and southern smurf camps. After a whole bunch of smurfly adventures, Papa Smurf is able to bring peace to the village by creating a new politically correct language which no longer uses the kind of compound words which the arguments were about. Unfortunately, this just leads to a different language debate instead. Arguably, that could be a decent definition of Belgian society. One big language debate.
1: If you are already familiar with the complexities of Low Countries comic history, you will have no doubt noticed big absences in what we've covered today. It is simply impossible to go into all the other influential works such as Spiro or Lucky Luke done in this region, in the time that we have had for this episode anyway. One glaring omission is the story of Martin Tonda Studios in the Netherlands, whose roots are also found in the pernicious and devastating period of Nazi occupation. Tonda became the biggest comic strip publisher in the country in the 20th century, and his studio dominated the scene in the aftermath of the Beeldroman Roman moral outrage probably his most famous character tom poos made his debut in 1941 and remains a recognizable character in the netherlands today we did not have time to go into this story it also seems remiss that we have not talked about a comic strip book series called Van Nul tot nu which in english would be from zero until now this is a comic series first published in 1982 which tells the history of the netherlands not only that but in full display of some weird glitch in the matrix it is a story of the history of the netherlands being told by an old man to a young australian girl who has recently moved to the netherlands yeah given the whole composition of this show we think that's just odd so despite having left out some things our focus in this episode has really just been twofold to show that illustrated storytelling is not a new thing in this region, with evidence of its practice stretching back as far as over 500 years ago. More importantly, however, is that we wanted to explore how Strip for halches or Bondé dessinée became a modern art form in the 19th and 20th centuries, and developed across the Low Countries in constant reflection of its environment, guided not only by the hands and minds of its illustrators and creators, but also by the linguistic, ethnic, social, military, political and economic forces swirling around it. Therein, as we see it, lies the beauty of the ninth
0: art. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Protect
1: your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any
0: storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com.